0: Thanks. Thanks, everybody. And I want to thank Nicole and Nick Capaciosos for, for having me. It's just a, a, such a delight to be back here in D.C., where I lived for many years and, and worked as a, as a jazz pianist, and um, to come back and enjoy the uh, the humidity and the heat, all those things that seem are far too absent in, in Colorado. So there, there, I thought what I would do is maybe... Um, make ten kind of quick points about uh, the book and Miles Davis. I'll, I'll read a few pages, and then I've got a recording of some of the session reels um, from one of the um, uh, the recordings from Miles Smiles. They're, they're um, session reels from Freedom Jazz Dance. And, and I'll use that maybe to, to make a larger point, and that'll probably happen in about 20 or, or 30 minutes. So the, the first point that I wanted to make is that there are a lot of views of Miles Davis. So there's this idea of Miles Davis as... Um, kind of iconoclastic uh, musician, Notice notion of him as being uh, this intense innovator who really shaped a lot of the post-war directions of music in America. Uh, Miles Davis is a boxer. Miles Davis is a brilliant kind of melodic improviser. Uh, Miles Davis is the owner of a lot of uh, sports cars and expensive suits. According to Sidney Crouch, uh, Miles Davis, the most brilliant sellout in the history of jazz. So there's lots of interesting views of, of Miles Davis. And uh, um, my interest was not in really examining or trying to unpack in, any of those in particular, but mostly just to, to think about and um, spend some time with the set of recordings that he did in the mid-60s with uh, his so-called second quintet. And... Uh, He recorded six albums with the second quintet between 1965 and 1968. So I guess we're roughly talking the the Johnson administration. uh, That's kind of when when those albums came out. Um, The the second point that I wanted to make is that before Miles formed this quintet, uh, he was in a little bit of a dilemma around the the early 1960s. And um, he was in this sort of peculiar position of of appearing old-fashioned in the, the the, the early 60s, uh, having been kind of scooped by a lot of the, the free jazz players from the, the late 50s and 60s. So um, while uh, Davis was one of the kind of prime movers and shakers in a lot of the post war developments um, in jazz in the, uh, the bebop era, having recorded with Charlie Parker and recording a series of influential um, um, sides of the late 1940s, early 50s that were really profoundly influential for what later became to be called cool jazz. Uh, his recordings in the 1950s, that's really set the standard for hard playing. Um, and also for his recordings in the late 1950s, um, in particular his album Kind of Blue, which ex- uh, kind of exemplifies what one of his sidemen referred to as his, uh, Davis's ambiance music, uh, which is probably better known by the term uh, modal jazz. So while having been kind of p- positioned himself really ahead of the curve... Uh, For so long, by the early 1960s, with the advent of of a lot of free jazz players, Ornette Coleman, Eric Dolphy, uh, John Coltrane, uh, he was sort of in this kind of curious position, or curious dilemma of seeming to be old-fashioned. And what he did about it was hire um, a series of very young players, and beginning with the rhythm section, uh, which included Ron Carter on bass... Um, Herbie Hancock on piano, and Hancock was 23 when he joined the Miles Davis Quintet, Uh, and Tony Williams, an astonishing drummer phenomenon, um, who was at the time 17 when he joined the Miles Davis Quintet. And uh, it became one of the most uh, influential and cohesive rhythm sections um, in the history of jazz. So it was a a series of players that could turn on a dime and uh, developed any number of ways of of uh, metric superimposition, harmonic superimposition, uh, changing feels, changing tempos. So it became a very um, uh, very significant uh, rhythm section in the, the early 19, 1960s. And the, the personnel stabilized um, in the late summer 1964 with um, the addition of Wayne Shorter on saxophone. And so that uh, came to be known as Miles Davis' um, second classic quintet, the first classic quintet being the group with uh, in the early, excuse me, the earlier group uh, in the late 1950s with John Coltrane and Paul Chambers and and Jimmy Cobb. Um, The other point that I want to make is that Davis had this kind of uneasy relationship to avant-garde jazz, and there are all sorts of interesting quotes where he said that Ornette Coleman played like he was all screwed up inside, and uh, I think there's another quote where he said Eric Dolphy plays, sounds like somebody's... uh, somebody's, yeah, a place like somebody's stepping on his foot. So um, there seemed to be not a lot of love lost between Davis and a lot of the avant-garde players, and he didn't necessarily seem to have um, a lot of interest or or allegiance to to some of those developments that were happening in the free jazz. But the players that he hired did, and I think the interesting thing about the players and the interesting thing about this group of recordings is that... um, the group pretty much cultivated this detente between a kind of magnific- magnificent detente between um, free jazz on the one hand and older styles on the other and the the group and the rhythm section in particular were able to kind of channel and, and go back and forth uh, between those, those two sides of the um, of, of the same coin um, the The six records that the quintet did um, have now achieved fairly iconic status and Um, Among them are the albums ESP and Miles Smiles, Nefertiti, Sorcerer, and and a couple of others. And um, they're primarily original compositions, and they're ones that, interestingly, the group rarely performed live. So these were almost kind of one-time deals, a lot of these these compositions and and these recordings. Um, And no one's really quite sure why the group never performed them live. Some people suggested that audiences expected him to play more standard compositions, which is primarily his, his repertory for live performances. Um, I speculate maybe in other possibilities that the songs themselves are quite complex, so um, uh, it kind of prohibited easy memorization. And when you see videos of the of the group, they're never reading any music, so that, that may have been another reason why they didn't um, didn't play those, perform those compositions live. Um, the, the compositions that they did record on the studio the recordings, in a lot of ways, I think you could argue that they're that they're, they exhibit a lot of really traditional sorts of ideas. So there's they're performed in this usually in this head solos head format, which is a standard practice of jazz. Um, the rhythm section feels are fairly traditional, so swing feel, what with walking bass, um, a standard ballad accompaniment, um, and um, most of them have this fairly predictable sequence of solos, so where it's trumpet moving to tenor saxophone moving to, to piano. So in that way, the recordings are actually fairly traditional, not that groundbreaking. But it, but I, I argue that, that in a lot of ways, um, the recordings, or maybe I should say in many other ways, the recordings are very groundbreaking. And the compositions themselves really paved uh, new ground and became really influential for the next generation of of musicians. So uh, from the standpoint of of jazz composition, I think these particular um, tunes or songs or compositions that are on these albums um, really form the cornerstone uh, of contemporary jazz composition. Most of them were written by Wayne Shorter. Herbie Hancock claimed that uh, the compositions themselves really seemed to give rise to a whole new style of improvising. So I I think all of them were aware that... um, a lot of the, the alterations, alterations or, or changes or departures from standard um, hard bop construction from the standpoint of harmony, standpoint of form, and uh, standpoint of melody, in particular, um, set up or allowed them to pursue different improvisational paths that have now become fairly influential. Um, one of the interesting things in working on this book, I got to look at Wayne Shorter's uh, lead sheets, where at, which are housed at the Library of Congress, and I want to thank Bertrand Uberall for, for letting me, um, uh, helping me uh, locate the, the, the lead sheets. And the lead sheets for th- that Wayne Shorter deposited with the Library of Congress were deposited around the time of the recordings. And for those of you that don't know, how many people don't know what a lead sheet is? Yeah, so, so a lead sheet is... Um, what a jazz musician would bring to a recording session or to a gig uh, that provides the chords and the melody to the composition so that, that they're going to record or, or perform. So uh, Wayne Shorter's lead sheets I, I think are, are revealing in a lot of ways. Um, in particular, they're revealing because they, they show Shorter in, a lot of, in many ways struggling with this new harmonic language that he's fashioning. Um, and you can see there's, there's lots of, I don't want to say problems, but there's lots of interesting issues and kind of wrinkles and, and ways of addressing some of these newer chords and newer harmonies that he was uh, attempting to work out. And um, in a lot of ways, those same problems really um, are, are around today, issues of how to label particular chords, how you identify them, what, you, what, what information you want to give to, to, to players. Um, so the, the, the lead sheets, I think, themselves are, are very revealing in, in a lot of different ways. Um, couple of other things to, to point out. By the time that Miles Davis formed the second quintet, he had already been leading bands for about 15 years. And he developed this really interesting style of, of band leading um, and a lot of it involved um, a, f- a high degree of spontaneity, so as opposed, in, in, in opposition to carefully rehearsed polish, um, notions of flexibility in performance. Um, he was also interested in providing his musicians with spontaneous challenges uh, in order to kind of rise above it. So I, I think it would be too strong uh, to say that he, he had an adversarial style of band leading. But I, but I do think that he was interested in kind of creating these interesting hurdles for his musicians to sort of rise above. And, and, and I think by, by virtue of that particular challenge, uh, kind of determine what, what might come out. Um, that might be different and might be less predictable. Wayne Shorter, the, the saxophonist, claimed that um, Davis was the only band leader he had who paid his musicians not to practice at home. So there's this sense that, um, this notion that the music always had to be fresh, always very unpredictable, and, uh, and Davis seemed to be really interested in exploring how to create those, those sort of situations. Now in the studio recordings it's very interesting because what happens on a lot of them are that there are a number of interesting sort of challenges or hurdles or roadblocks that are provided to the musicians on the recording. So, uh, for example, in one of the compositions um, that's uh, from from the album Miles Smiles, uh, the, the musicians are given a little section of four measures that they can insert at will just spontaneously without necessarily having that predetermined. And that's a really unusual sort of practice to, to have. Most of the time the musicians have the set of chords. They know what, how many measures. So when you, you, when you have these kind of spontaneous insertions that can arise, everybody has to be aware and everyone has to be on board and kind of scrambling to make sure that they can hear hear what's going on. So that that's one of the, the potential or one of the hurdles or roadblocks that, that's set up in on, on these recordings. Um, in other ones, um, the group exhibits what's sometimes called time no changes where the, the rhythm section just plays without an underlying chord progression and it, it's a little bit more of a freer sort of uh, improvisational style and the, the soloist can, can respond to, to that. Um, the other thing I think that's really interesting that, that came out is that all these five musicians, uh, Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony Williams, and Wayne Shorter... Um, all of them considered the studio to be a kind of in-progress workshop. And so rather than coming in with everything carefully worked out and everything predetermined, the musicians would often bring a lead sheet into the recording studio, and any number of different possibilities might arise, and any number of suggestions are given for uh, for the players, often um, orchestrated by Davis, Davis might make a suggestion like take out this chord, take out this measure, uh, do something different, put a different bass note. S- um, and, and all of them uh, participated to a certain extent in shaping and molding and resculpting the compositions. So the composition itself, when we often think of a composition or a lead sheet or a, or a tune, uh, we, we tend to think of it as a fixed kind of entity. And I think one of the interesting things about this group in the studio is that rather than, than having the composition as a really fixed entity, it becomes something really very, very fluid and very malleable. In a way, I suppose you, you could link that back to, to Davis's own interest as, as a visual artist, too. And so the notions that he might be just exploring uh, maybe different perspectives on the same sort of object you know, in the way that you, you would have with, with visual arts. Uh, and, and I think the other thing that, that's really important is, to, is the fact that uh, while they were in the studio, Davis seemed to really be interested in working out roles for the different instrumentalists, so in particular the, the rhythm sections. So while it would be easy to think that um, when you have a set of players and a set of compositions, all of the compositions might kind of come out samey, Um, I think in a lot of ways, um, Davis was interested in in forging individual identity roles for for different songs. So the, the piano in one particular song might be doing this sort of thing. Um, there's a composition called Vonetta in which the, uh, which is a very slow kind of dreamy ballad. And the, the, the drummer just plays these military, militaristic kind of roles. And, and evidently, according to, uh, Herbie Hancock, he said that Davis just turned to the drummer and say, uh, play me a Rat Patrol sound. Those of you who are uh, old enough, as old as I am, remember the show Rat Patrol with the, the kind of military themed, um, accompaniment. So, uh, he was really interested in, in exploring unusual roles for instruments, um, and setting up, I think, particular identities for instruments that helped create an identity for for the composition itself. Uh, What I'd like to do next is just read a little bit of the introduction, which describes what happens during one of the session reels from the recording. And then I bought a CD of the session reel of what I'm describing here, so you, after I talk about it a little bit, you can hear Miles Davis in his own words tell it working with the musicians and telling them what to do. And for each of those, I've got about nine or so of those, about, each about one minute or so um, from the session reels, and, and I'll try to set those up first before we listen to them. But, but before I do, I'll, I'll read a little bit of the, the introduction. In the 30th Street Columbia Recording Studio, the five musicians begin to rehearse Eddie Harris's composition, Freedom Jazz Dance. The studio, a former Presbyterian church on the east side of Manhattan, has high arched ceilings, lath and plaster walls, and an unvarnished wood floor, all contributing to its celebrated warm and rich acoustic ambience. Miles Davis begins with bassist Ron Carter, providing Carter with suggestions as he tries different bass accompanimental figures. Carter comes up with a figure that sounds like a funky jazz cliché. Davis dismisses it, quote, No, that's too common. Come on. Unquote. He sings through some different rhythms. Several minutes later, pianist Herbie Hancock starts to work out a melodic uh, idea in the lower register of the piano to harmonize with Carter's bass. Davis says, uh, I'll try to do it, uh, Miles, my best Miles Davis imitation. Uh, Herbie, hit a chord, hit a chord. Mm -hmm. Davis walks over to the piano and voices a B-flat, sharp 9, sharp 11 chord. Hancock plays a denser chord consisting of the C sharp diminished seventh above the D diminished seventh chord. Davis responds, yeah, okay. The group runs through the head a couple of times. There are a few problems in executing the melody. To saxophonist Wayne Shorter, Davis rasps, we need to divide this up, brother, suggesting that each play separately a portion of the second half of the melody. Hancock says, it's getting there, it's getting there. Following the next take, Davis says, you know, Wayne, what we can do... And Davis sings the melody, but adds two bar- bars of silence with, uh, within each of the three phrases. They try it with the additional bars without melody. To producer Tio Macero in the control room, Davis says, hey Tio, play that back. Recording uh, his own suggestion for the bars of silence added within Harris's melody, Davis adds, that's a nice idea though, brilliant idea. <laughs> the group runs through the head several more times. To drummer Tony Williams, Davis suggests that he play eighth note triplets. The group tries the head in another recorded take, the 10th. Finally, despite a false start, Davis comes in early at the beginning, take 11 continues with solos. It becomes the master take released on the recording. Uh, Freedom Jazz Dance would appear on the quintet studio album Miles Smiles. The above dialogue, taken from the October 24, 1966 session reels, shows the collaborative workshop aspect to the group's preparations. Many of the decisions for rhythm section accompaniment and for alteration to Harris's melody arise from Davis's suggestions, but the other players o- offer also comments and contributions. Not all of Davis's suggestions were used in the final take. Early on, Davis has Williams play woodblocks and elsewhere suggest that Hancock lay out during the head statements, but the reels suggest an ongoing brainstorming process, one that allows revision, avoids cliche, and considers att- uh, additional ideas to emerge while the group records. Then listens to earlier takes. So what I'd like to do now is listen to a couple of portions of the uh, session reels that I, I just described for you. So the, the first one, um, we'll just listen to for about a minute and a half or so. And it's, you'll hear Davis working with Ron Carter, the bass player, trying to work out some, some accompanimental figures in the bass. Maybe a little bit louder, I think it's... Can everyone hear? Maybe a little, little louder. No.
1: This
0: is play eight notes from the chord. Let's hear. Uh, let's see. Track two. Um, let's go ahead and hear that, and you can hear the group executing a little bit of the the, uh, yeah. the melody of the song. Mm-hmm. Just track two. Mm-hmm. And the next track, track three, you'll hear um, Davis making a few suggestions for Herbie Hancock about what to do with the, with the piano. And he's, you'll hear Hancock's kind of working out something in the lower part of the, of the piano. And then Davis says, no, just, just, just play a chord and kind of walks up to the piano and plays a chord. So let's, let's hear a little bit of that. This is track three. And the, the next track, uh, track five, you'll hear um, to, drummer Tony Williams playing woodblocks, and then they'll, they'll play it. And at the, the very end, then Davis says, uh, "No, that sounds terrible. Well, so don't do that." So uh, you can, there's a significant dr- degree, I think, of trial and error you can hear with kind of working through these things. So this is track five, and this is take one D. That's the woodblocks. Uh, we missed him say that's terrible, but anyway, that's that's what he says there. Uh, track six, you'll hear um, them rehearse the 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 melody, and then uh, you'll hear him going a little bit of, of soloing here at this point. So let's let's hear a little bit of that. This is take two. Uh, track seven, we'll hear him. Uh, the, the, the melody you might hear is a little kind of uh, difficult to execute on, on trumpet, and he addresses that issue a little bit with his track seven. And track nine is, is sort of the, one of the pivotal tracks here. And this is where Davis suggested, suggested, probably because it's so difficult to play, he suggests that each of the melody has some bars of silence in, in between. And when, if you know Miles Davis' music and his playing, you'll, you'll probably remember that s- issues of space are really a kind of significant aesthetic principle for, for Davis. And that, that's kind of worked, worked in here a little bit. And so you'll hear him kind of singing the melody with the bars of space and, and um, kind of working on that a little bit. So this is track number nine. It's nine. losing
1: the...
0: Okay, okay. Uh, let's see, maybe we'll listen to, to one or two more tracks. Uh, the, and the next one he's working with Tony Williams and suggesting that he play triplets on, on the drums and this ends up kind of getting folded into the, the, the final performance. And so what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is that they're, as they're working out all these ideas, gradually, you know, it's sort of like an omelette, gradually all these things kind of get folded into the to the, the finished product. And so let's listen to track four, uh, number 14. This is take nine. So anyway, they're, they're working out this, this triplet idea. And, and I, the last one that I'll play is uh, maybe a little bit of, of what gets released as the, the, the master track. And this is take 11, and this is number 16 on the CD. And you'll hear a little bit of a false start with the trumpet. And then they start over. And this one kind of sticks. But here, all the, the ideas of the bass accompaniment that he worked out, the piano accompaniment, the drums and the triplets the space in the melody. All of these sort of become part of the the final product. And that's the the track that was released on on the recording. So I I just want to end with maybe one point or one one argument. Um, There are a number of people have referred to Miles Davis as a a one-take player. Um, because of this, this notion of the kind of freshness and spontaneity um, and a kind of warts-and-all aesthetic. And even though, for example, the release track does have this little kind of funny false start, uh, they end up releasing it anyway, and, and it happens on, on a number of the different recordings. But, but I, I think what this is meant to, to show is that uh, the notion as, as a one-take player might be a little overstated. I mean, you can hear that there's a really detailed and ongoing and experimental... Uh, way of working out these compositions and there's a real concern for the for the finished product So I think rather than a a one-track, I mean or one-take player. I mean we heard 11 takes and really kind of careful working out of of all of the roles for the for the different players and that became the the recording that that we know uh, Now from from the Miles Smiles recording and it's it's considered a fairly iconic um, um, recording for for lots of different reasons so Thanks for your time. I'm I'm happy to, if you have any questions, I'm I'm happy to entertain any questions, but I think I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to you all if you have any questions. So thanks. A lot of people have talked about the album Nefertiti as being a real pivotal um, album, and Nefertiti is very interesting because it's uh, the first composition that involves no real improvisation as we think about it. Uh, It's just uh, repeated statements of the melody over and over again. In fact, I have the session reels for that, too, where they they just play it and try out the melody, and then they kind of laugh and say, well, let's just do it without any solos and kind of almost make a joke out of it, and that's that's how they, they end up recording it. you hear them actually that? Yeah. Do I've, I've got the thing here. If, uh, maybe we can play it if we have time. Um, and some people have suggested that that's, that really is a harbinger of Miles Davis's kind of turn towards um, notions of, of mood and color over, you know, a series of solos, which is more of the kind of traditional jazz principle. So from that standpoint, I, I, think that was important. And then the later recordings too, I think particularly Field de Kilimanjaro and a little bit of, of, um, Miles in the Sky, uh, there's the obvious sorts of relationships with, um, uh, what came to be called fusion, so notions of, of, of electric instruments and rock rhythms and maybe simpler, more spare harmonic textures. So all of that was in the air. Uh, but I, I, I do argue that that's a little... It, it doesn't do justice to those later albums because it just considers them as really transitional. And I think those albums need to be taken um, taken on their own because I, th- I think they're, they're very interesting and very unusual. And in a lot of ways, I had the most fun working with those, those recordings just, just because of their unusualness and the fact that some of the... The compositions themselves are these extended, huge forms, and, and all that. Um, one of them, uh, Toot Suite, is a seventy-bar composition, which is really quite quite unusual for, for standard jazz composition. So um, I, I think in a number of ways, s- certain things point to his later works. So the the, the notion of mood and color, and the, then the notion of kind of proto-fusion sort of elements happening. Uh, but I but I do think it's also interesting to hear them not so much in just as a harbinger of what's to come, but just in terms of, on, on their own terms too. Oh uh,
1: yeah, sir. What would you say Charlie Bird relationship with
0: him? Charlie Parker? Parker. Charlie Parker. Yeah. Um, well, Miles played with Parker in the late 40s and recorded with him and had a sort of uneasy relationship with with him as I think most musicians who worked with Parker did. Um, but I I think uh, Parker died in 55, you know, having been the the this probably the the single most important figure in bebop. Um, and I think Davis picked up on that. But, but I do think that Davis's own aesthetic um, ideas were a little different from that. I mean, less involved in um, technique and less involved in that sort of improvisational prowess from the standpoint of, of technique and running the changes. And, and I think for Davis, there was a lot more um, emphasis on just sound for its own sake. You know, I mean, he's a real colorist, I think, and in using a lot of space and using the the middle register of the trumpet and um, and developing a real identifiable sound. So, I I think you can trace some some ideas of influence there. But but I do think that um, Davis's own aesthetic might be a little different. I mean, to 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 put it in a real superficial way, you could say that Parker was more from the uh, the hot school and Davis is more from the kind of cool school. But That that may be a little little oversimplified, but just the the notion that things uh, have a lot more space, uh, are never flashy, and um, I guess develop sound and color. I think in a lot of ways for for its own sake, maybe you could say. So I don't. I don't. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I was just wondering whether or not he saw something in Davis. Yeah, that's that's
0: an interesting. That's a very interesting question
1: genius. Yeah. There's sometimes people see other things and other people and I if he saw any of that.
0: I, I think so and I think that might have rubbed off on Davis as a band leader too. Maybe to to put another spin on what you're saying, um, Davis often hired musicians who complemented rather than duplicated his own strengths. And and that might be the same thing with Parker that Parker was lo- looking for someone who was not a brilliant technician on the trumpet. That's what Parker did, but 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 Miles Davis kind of brought something else to the table that's very different, and I think for Davis as a band leader, that's that's an interesting um, aspect of his band leading that a lot of his sidemen. Well, there's a quote where he just said, you know, always hire younger people because they'll play they'll play louder, excuse me, louder and faster than you will. <laughs> so in a way, that's you know kind of works as a <laughs> one position. But if you think about a lot of his sidemen, John Coltrane is very different from My- Miles Davis and was one of his sidemen. Uh, Tony Williams, the drummer, was much more technically oriented, I think, than, than Davis as a, as a leader or as a player. So, yeah, I think he was, he thought about things in terms of uh, space and what, whatever the opposite of space is, kind of density or something. So, and, and I think he, he probably, I don't know how conscious it was, but I think that, that happens in a lot of um, Davis's music and a lot of his choice of, of sidemen and, and all that. Yeah, interesting question, though. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah,
1: pretty. You mentioned how a lot of the compositions were not really played except that one time in the studio. Yeah. But since then they've been a bit revisited. Have you uh, compared a bit to what Wade's been doing with some of them now, uh, Masculera and Orbits? Have you listened to those
0: recent recordings? I haven't. Um, I talk a little bit about the, the the more recent aftermath after these recordings. So um, so the Dolores recording from the VSOP and and some of those things. Not so much the more recent. So uh, I haven't it,
1: heard the Orbits version, the orchestra version. No, really no. I'm really yeah. If you hadn't slapped the title on there, I think I would have missed
0: You wouldn't have realized it was the same one. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and right after the book came out, um, I was uh, talking with Dave Liebman, and he just recorded an entire album of second quintet compositions. So he's revisiting all of these things. So, you know, they're, they're kind of coming back um, to, to a certain extent with, um, with a lot of players... Um, and uh, I, I spent a little bit of time in, in the book, too, talking about how these compositions became sort of absorbed into the jazz canon for different reasons. One is that they got picked up and put in a lot of fake books that musicians tended to use, and so they, they circulated really wi- um, widely, and so they were kind of ubiquitous. So in that sense, they become um, part of the the, the jazz canon. Um, but they're, they're tricky compositions. They're, they're not easy to play, So and they're in many ways quite, quite unusual. Also, the
1: way they did Nefertiti when they wound up doing it Mm-hmm. They actually tried Pinocchio that way, too. Right. Exactly. So yeah. Is there anything in session reels where they say, no, let's do it with the standard solos? And all.
0: Uh, they don't
1: quite do it that way because they repeat the head in the middle
0: after each solo. Uh, for Pinocchio, yeah. I, I didn't get the session reels for Pinocchio, so I'm not exactly sure about that. But for Nefertiti, uh, it's like Freedom Jazz Dance. They're just rehearsing the head and just kind of you know figuring out how to execute the melody and play it well together. And then at some point... Uh, and what I argue in the book that one of the aspects of, of that particular composition, which doesn't have any solos, is that it's a circular tune, which is, means that it's, it's written in this way that when you get to the end of the tune, basically jazz musicians play a tune all the way from, from beginning to end, 32 bars or whatever, and then you go back and then you repeat it and you improvise over it. And uh, Nefertiti is written in such a way that when you get to the end of the tune, the top of the form sounds like a continuation of what happened before. So it's a real circular sort of... Uh, effect and i think that might have been one of the one of the motivations for for recording it without solos just because it has this kind of circularity that you don't want to disrupt i mean it's this kind of mobius strip endless melody kind of kind of feel i thought was
1: all in but then they
0: changed their mind and then, and then did it yeah with the with the solos odd, uh, yeah uh, yeah, and, and I think with a lot of those students, as, as you say, with Pinocchio, they they play the head in between every solo, and, and I think they're working at all all those different things. And and I even have a quote from 59 where Cannibal Adderley says that Davis is just tired of the same old play the head, play solos, and play the head. So, I mean, he had been, you know, chafing at the bit for a while and kind of thinking about, you know... And I think that's... You know, this is, we're talking about somebody who's a really kind of restless innovator, I think in a lot of ways, very much like Picasso or Stravinsky. And, and I think that... Um, you know, when you have somebody like that, they're always sort of tampering and working and, and trying to challenge a lot of the received notions of, of jazz practice. And, and that's, I think, what these albums really exhibit a lot, that you know, sort of expectations of what should happen get kind of changed or thwarted or, you know, altered somehow and really really interesting and um, in, in many ways transcendental sort of ways. Yeah?
1: Uh, two very quick questions. One, can you talk about the impact of Teo Macero on Miles? Uh-huh. And what he sort of and secondly, the concept of space. They yeah. Obviously, defined miles in a big way. Did that start in the '60s? I mean, certainly expanded upon it over
0: time. I think you hear that even in his recordings with Charlie Parker. That there's, you know, this kind of much sparer sort of playing. So I think that that was always a part of his whole aesthetic. I think that's just how we how we heard music. Um, so yeah, I think space is something that uh, is often associated with with Davis. Um, critics might not have picked up on it so much in his recordings with Parker, but certainly by the the, the birth of the Cool recordings from 49 and 50 and then through the 50s, that that became um, an important way of thinking about about that. And, I mean, if you wanted to sort of pursue it further, I I think a lot of those ideas, you could relate to um, notions of of film in the 50s and film noir, you know, the less is more, you know, whoever, Humphrey Bogart, or name your favorite noir actor. You know, this kind of uh, idea that... uh, you're showing toughness by by having a lot of reserve. I think that's, that's maybe one, one way to, to think about that. In terms of Tame Macero, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, certainly there are overdubs, or not overdubs, excuse me, there are splices on some of these recordings that he would have been involved in. Um, I don't know. I mean, it seems like he was sort of just there to to kind of I, I, all I have is just the, the evidence of, of what happens in these session reels. And he's, he doesn't really participate that much. Just, you know, let's do it. Yes, you can play the melody, you know, even though Davis says, you know, he can't play it or whatever. So, uh, you know, there, there's that kind of encouraging role that producers <laughs> typically typically do. And I don't know what else. Maybe he supplied the beer or something like that too <laughs> at, at the sessions. But...
1: Um, what people talk about is that
0: I think even the earlier recordings before this group, he was involved in doing a lot of um, splicing and, and things like that. So there are some recordings from Someday My Prince Will Come, um, one that's in f- uh, called Dread Dog, that um, there's obviously a lot of kind of cutting and pasting going on there. So, and and, and Masero himself, I think, was a trained composer, if I'm not mistaken, and worked in the comp- one of the composer's workshops in, in New York. So he probably brought more to the table than I'm aware of. I, I just don't know. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. And some people, uh, Robert Walser has addressed that a little bit, and particularly with um, one of Davis's 64 recordings from My, My Funny Valentine. Um, I would say by the time that this album comes out, um, he's, those same um, technical problems that, you know, people talked about in 64, by this point, they seem to be pretty absent. And uh, evidently, Tony Williams was this huge influence on Davis and, and kind of chided him and, and almost embarrassed him into doing more practicing and getting more... More on top of his instrument and, and and all that. So so I hear a lot more technical mastery and control and, and and it's not in a flashy way, but just in terms of the sound and you know the the clarity of the ideas and and, and all that. So, yeah, I, I think it's hard or maybe difficult or dangerous to 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 suggest that Davis always had those kind of issues. I think it was a sort of, you know, he had lots of health problems over the years and and that probably affected it too. You know, so uh, but. On the Yeah, but certainly by this recording in in 65... uh, 66, excuse me. uh, It's, you know, it's all there.
1: So it suggests that he was willing to work on it, and it's good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even though he pays
0: the other musicians not to practice at home, maybe he did himself. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, good. Any other? Oh, yeah.
1: What would you say is the record where they really hit their stride as a unit?
0: This, Miles Miles. Miles Miles? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the the album of this quintet in, in in a lot of people's opinion. So, that's uh, yeah, it's got it's got it all. <laughs>
1: so, um, okay, one last question. Uh,
0: let's see. the one back here.
1: Uh, I was just curious you mentioned um, what Miles thought of some of the, the avant-garde players. Yeah. What, what was sort of the like the new the new things kind of reaction to this, you know, group of albums and, and how were how
0: That's a really interesting question. Um, some people have suggested... Uh, Harvey Picard, the cartoonist, has written about these the albums as a set, and he suggested that they weren't really even... Um, they were off the radar to a certain extent. Uh, I, I don't really... I'm not sure if I agree with that totally. I mean, if you read the Downbeat reviews, particularly of Miles Smiles, it's really laudatory. Dan Morgenstern is just glowing in his praise, and, and he picks up on a lot of the, the things that are going on with, with those recordings. Um, people might not have been... Hearing everything that was going on, but you know no no one had there's so much to hear you know there's uh, no one hasn 't um, but i I think over the years they've probably accumulated even further capital and particularly as um, and as fusion kind of went on, and there, I think you could argue that there were a lot of returns to traditionalism in the 1980s, um, Art Blakey, and then, of course, Wynton Marsalis, who recorded with all of these guys early in his career, before he became a little more uh, conservative sort of player, um, that with a lot of that and returns to acoustic sort of settings and, and all of that, that just, yeah, I think the capital of these recordings has, has raised... Um, uh, has been raised to a significant extent, and I think it's still, still there. I mean, a lot of people just really regard these as some of the most influential jazz albums of all time. Dave Liebman is that's kind of what what he suggests. So um, a- as to whether they were considered that at the time, maybe not quite so much because they were eclipsed by a lot of other things going on. Certainly by Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and a lot of the other, other things that were happening in the '60s. Yeah. So, um, but I think in a lot of ways, they. Um, at this point they they have attained iconic status so to speak
1: All okay right, thanks